Today's scripture reading is from 1 Samuel chapter 19. <clears throat> Excuse me. So Saul ordered his son Jonathan and all his servants to kill David. But Saul's son Jonathan liked David very much, so he told him, My father Saul intends to kill you. Be on your guard in the morning and hide in a secret place and stay there. I'll go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are and talk to him about you. When I see what he says, I'll tell you. Jonathan spoke well of David to his father Saul. He said to him, the king should not sin against his servant David. He hasn't sinned against you. In fact, his actions have been a great advantage to you. He took his life in his hands when he struck down the Philistine, and the Lord brought about a great victory for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. So why would you sin against innocent blood by killing David for no reason? Saul listened to Jonathan's advice and swore an oath. As surely as the Lord lives, David will not be killed. So Jonathan summoned David and told him all these words. Then Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he served him as he did before. When war broke out again, David went out and fought against the Philistines. He defeated them with such great force that they fled from him. Now an evil spirit sent from the Lord came on Saul as he was sitting in his palace holding a spear. David was playing the lyre, and Saul tried to pin David to the wall with the spear. As the spear struck the wall, David eluded Saul, ran away, and escaped that night. Saul sent agents to David's house to watch for him and kill him in the morning. But his wife, Michal, warned David, if you don't escape tonight, you will be dead tomorrow. So she lowered David from the window, and he fled and escaped. Then Michal took the household idol and put it on the bed, placed some goat hair on its head, and covered it with a garment. When Saul sent agents to seize David, Michal said, He's sick. Saul sent the agents back to see David and said, Bring him on his bed so I can kill him. When the agents arrived, to their surprise, the household idol was on the bed with some goat hair on its head. Saul asked Michal, why did you deceive me like this? You sent my enemy away, and he has escaped. She answered him. He said to me, let me go. Why should I kill you? So David fled and escaped and went to Samuel at Ramah and told him everything Saul had done to him. Then he and Samuel left and stayed at Naioth. When it was reported to Saul that David was at Naioth in Ramah, he sent agents to seize David. However, when they saw the group of prophets prophesying with Samuel leading them, the Spirit of God came on Saul's agents, and they also started prophesying. When they reported to Saul, he sent other agents, and they also began prophesying. So Saul tried again and sent a third group of agents, and even they began prophesying. Then Saul himself went to Ramah. He came to the large cistern at Seku and asked, Where are Samuel and David? At Naioth and Ramah, so someone said. So he went to Naioth and Ramah. The Spirit of God also came on him, and as he walked along, he prophesied until he entered Naioth and Ramah. Saul then removed his clothes and also prophesied before Samuel. He collapsed and lay naked all that day and all that night. That is why they say, Is Saul also among the prophets?
This is the word of the Lord. Well, thank you especially to the kiddos who hung in there for the longer scripture reading. You see, the reason that we've had the whole chapter, verse 19, read as we're walking through the life of David is because we want you to get a glimpse of how David finds strength in times of suffering. How does he look to God and his faith in order to be strengthened as Saul now begins to persecute him? Because if you were to read chapter 18, <clears throat> excuse me, you would see the word success over and over and over again describing David. Everything David does is successful. But now, verse 19, excuse me, chapter 19, and now even going forward into the rest of the story, David's whole life is going to be pretty disappointing considering everything that God had promised him. God promised him the palace and the kingdom. He'd be the ruler of Israel. He's had all the success so far. So all the promises, all the track record, everything is lined up. And now, instead of a palace, he's going to find himself roaming the wilderness on the run, exiled from his community, ashamed. And this whole time now, as we begin to see this, we can get a glimpse of how does David find strength in the midst of suffering? So that, of course, as we're following God in a fallen world, as the front of your worship program says, how can you find strength and meaning in times of suffering? But here's the really interesting thing. You look at a, uh, you look at a chapter like chapter 19, and there's lots of crazy stuff happening. I mean, I will say this. For a family worship Sunday, the scripture reading's pretty juicy, right? David, he has to like do the whole dummy in the bed trick so he can jump out the window and escape Saul, right? And then as he's going, like there's this big party and so Saul sends all his henchmen and then everyone gets into the party and he sends more henchmen and they're all still partying until eventually Saul has to come. And then if you're really paying attention, you're like, wait, when it said Saul took his clothes off, like how naked did Saul get? Like, pool naked or like bathroom naked? You know, I mean, it's a juicy passage. I'm not going to lie to you. But here's the interesting thing. As we're coming to this passage and we're looking, okay, as David begins to suffering, like what do any of these stories mean? Like how do any of these stories help us today? And how on earth are we supposed to know what David's going through? Because when you read the whole story, David says not one word. Not one word. Saul has some lines. Jonathan has lines. His wife has lines. Even some random stranger on the side of the road who's named someone has a line. No lines for David. So how do we understand? How can we get a glimpse at what is happening? Well, thankfully, we have available to us the book of Psalms, many of which are written by David, and ascribed to Psalm 59 is the inscription that David wrote this psalm. When Saul sent agents to watch the house and kill him. 
And when you read it, it of course resonates with exactly what's happening. It's like they return at evening. Men have surrounded me to ambush me. They're prowling around the city. They spew lies. They're like ravenous dogs, scavenging for food as they come to attack me. And yet, we see right here in Psalm 59, in verse 9, David writes this. I will keep watch for you, my strength. I will keep watch for you, my strength. So how does David gain strength in this time of suffering? Well, that idea, as it goes on, it says, because God is my stronghold. Now, that word stronghold might seem a little foreign to us, and maybe in your translation of God's word, it has something like a high tower or a citadel or a fortress, because this is actually getting at this idea of a a military encampment, a, a place in the city that was high up so that people could watch for what was about to come, whether that was invading armies, whether that was emissaries to bring gifts and make treaties, whether that was just even to watch the weather to see what kind of storms would be coming in so that people could be prepared, they would have this high tower. That's where they could find strength. And so David is strengthened because he goes to God like this tower. And as he goes into God, we're going to see that he looks in three different directions. He looks up, he looks forward, and he looks backward. So let me say that again. David's going to have a perspective in which he looks up, he looks backward, and then he looks forward. He looks up, he looks back, he looks forward. This is how David is strengthened. So let's dive right into those as our three headings. How is David strengthened by looking up? As all of this suffering begins to set in, and he begins to wander now, run off into the wilderness. He says in verse 10, my faithful God will come to meet me. So he's looking up to God. The reason I point this out is because so often when suffering, especially disappointments, come into our lives, like a storm coming upon a city or an invading army, something that happens and isn't just like a difficult trial, like, you know, everyone who has the cold and flu right now. Like, it's, that's really hard. But I'm, I'm talking about the kinds of things that can spring upon us that seem to change the entire trajectory now of our lives. Everything that we expected, everything that we've experienced, now we're on the precipice of an entirely different future than what we would have envisioned for our lives. Whether that's from the diagnosis from the doctor whether that's from that last text message from your spouse, whatever kind of suffering may set in, it's the kind that throws you where you have no idea what the future is going to hold now. And I think in those moments, it's natural for all of us to ask, why would God let this happen? Doesn't God care? How could God, who you say is all loving, we always come to church, we sing songs about how loving God is, and yet why would he do this to me? Is God punishing me? You know, the other side of that is, well, could God just not stop this? Now, I think 
if you are a Christian, you, you, you know or you at least believe like God's this all-powerful being, so I'm thinking he could have stopped it. Why didn't he? And you begin to be thrown into these questions. And so David, of course, is faced with all these same questions as he's seeing his whole future unraveling right now as he has to basically sneak out of the city in humiliation. And he has to take cover from an old prophet to protect him. And so I think in these moments, it can be easy to abandon our faith in God, to go, you know, how could a good God allow this to happen? There must not be the good God I thought there was. Now, the question when you ask this text is always, why does David continue to trust God? Why doesn't he just take matters into his own hands? He could easily beat Saul in a fight, right? Everything is set up for him to be able to take control of things, and yet why, why run off in disgrace? And I think this comes through in our world today, in our culture today, is to say, see, if there really is a loving God, he wouldn't allow stuff like this to happen. Therefore, you can't live as if there's a God. You should abandon your faith in God because actually, if you abandon your faith in God, they say, you can find more meaning and more excitement in this life. Because if all you're living for is the afterlife, well, this life is just kind of second place. You won't really take it seriously. And I think someone who gets this across really well is the comedian Ricky Gervais. And he says in, I think, his Netflix show, The Afterlife, or just Afterlife, he actually is, is pressed. He's playing this, um, this man who has lost his wife to cancer, and he's an absolute atheist. He thinks there's nothing at the end of life, and so it's constantly, how does his worldview play out? That's the premise of the show. And so he's being questioned by one of his coworkers, like, if this is all there is, like, how can you say there's any meaning and value in life? And Ricky says, look, Ricky's character says, look, if you're watching a movie and then someone comes in and is like, hey, you know this is going to end eventually, right? Does that like make you go, oh, well, might as well just turn it off if there's an ending to this thing. I didn't know that before I started it. No, it actually, because there's an ending, he goes on to explain, it actually makes you savor it more. And the thing is with life, unlike a movie, you only get to watch it once. And because you only get to watch it once, that makes it more precious and more meaningful. And therefore, you really need to gain meaning and make an impact and do something in this life. You see, it makes it more precious and more exciting because there is an end and this is all that we have. Well, what do we say to that? Because that does seem to get around this idea of like, well, okay, well, there isn't just some all-powerful God. How do we... We should just get more meaning and excitement out of life because this is it, your one shot. It is going to end, and therefore it's more precious and more exciting. What do we say to that? Well, I think while absolutely we all find ways to find meaning in suffering, and quite honestly, for anyone who is suffering, anything that provides you meaning, I, I would say, can be helpful. So this is not to say that you can only find meaning in God, but I will say this, this idea of abandoning your faith in God because of meaning and suffering does not get you out of the problem of why do bad things happen? 
Because the fact of the matter is, if bad things happen, then we all maybe need to be like, well, like the guy in your office who's all about stoicism these days, right? Who, you know, listens to the podcast and he knows like, all right, if there is no afterlife and this is all we need to do, we need to make the most of it. And so what's the meaning of life now? Well, it's to express our highest good. It's to be our, our, our character for the common good is the fruit of this life, as Marcus Aurelius would say. And so we actually then get this quote from Marcus Aurelius, where he's quoting Epictetus, and he says, as you kiss your son goodnight, say to yourself, he may be dead in the morning. Now that's grim, right? You say, goodness gracious, I thought this was to help me get through suffering. Now you're just heaping it on. Well, see, here is the thing. You are confronted with a few choices. You can either just accept that this is life, And these things happen. And so what you have to do is to express your highest amount of character for the common good. And that you need to be able to accept the worst circumstances so that you can still be a man of character in the best circumstances. But you see, I think this still, this question of, well, hold on, is is there any meaning in life? Continues to press in whether you give up faith in God or whether you keep it. We all have to answer the question, so what's the point of all of this? What's the point of all of this? You see, I think what faith in God offers us is a more durable meaning when suffering comes. You see, you can either create meaning in your life or you can discover some objective, real meaning in life. And I think if there is a discovered objective meaning in life, it is more durable for suffering. And I don't think there's anyone who's ever written on this better than Viktor Frankl in his work, Man's Search for Meaning. See, Viktor Frankl is a psychologist who survived the Nazi concentration camps. And in there, he details the people who were able to survive. When they went into these camps, what their meaning in life was, ultimately, resulted in three things. He says that those who made a career of social status or family, their meaning in life, right? These meanings were things that the death camps could just sweep away. And so some would just collapse psychologically and spiritually and often die by simply, he says, just giving up. He said some would collapse morally. If your meaning in life could just be taken from you by suffering and circumstances, whether it's success for your family, whatever you're finding it in, if it can be taken away, some collapse morally. He says they were prepared to use every means, even brutal force, theft, and the betrayal of their friends in order to save themselves. But he goes on to say those who didn't crumble or collapse or give up had a different reference point for their meaning in life. He says when he would talk with people to infuse their suffering with dignity and value, he would remind them, look, you have to believe that someone looks down on each of us in difficult hours, a friend, a wife, somebody alive or dead, or a god. For for him, he didn't care. As long as there was some kind of reference point outside of this life that no suffering in this life could take away, he said, and he would not expect us to disappoint him. And he says, those people who could come through the camps, actually being forged into incredible human beings, 
You see, there's always these different modes for how we can find meaning in life, right? So Buddhists would say suffering is just an illusion, and so you need to break free and become part of the all soul. Or karma, if you're suffering, well, hate to break it to you, but you deserved it, right? You did something in a past life that you now need to pay for. So suffering, you know, there's meaning in it, right? It's not taking away your meaning. You just don't know the meaning from your last life. Or just take Greek and pagan religions, right? The idea is to live a good enough life so that you can get into Elysium or the halls of Valhalla, right? We see, I think Christianity offers something unique. Because when you look at verse 10, to bring this back to the text here, when you look at verse 10, the meaning of the universe is not to align with a set of principles, but it's to align with a person. A God, as Viktor Frankl would say, that does look down on us, but one who David says in verse 10, my faithful God will come to meet me. It's so easy to glance past it, but that word meet actually has a lot of significance in that it conveys these two frames. One is that God will come to meet me as in he will stand before me and protect me, but it's also conveying that God will come to meet me as in he will stand before me and I will see him face to face. I will experience him and I will know that any suffering in this life is not going to detract from my living and meeting with him. It will only ever add to it. And so Rebecca McLaughlin is an author who's written, you know, a couple of different books defending Christianity, right? And in one of her seminars that she references a friend of hers who has just gotten a diagnosis for a pretty serious disease, and this friend's in her early 30s, and her life expectancy is not high. And this is what her friend texts to her. She says, there is a redemptive power in my suffering that is transcendent. I'm closer to Jesus than all my days. There's a low life prognosis from my disease, but the joy of potentially seeing him fills my heart with thanksgiving. He is all that I know, and I may finally be able to behold him. You see, here's ultimately what we're left with, I think. If your meaning in life is that this is this, this is it, this is all we have, it is more precious and more exciting, then ultimately what you have to do is you have to not think about the end so that the dread of meaninglessness doesn't break in. You have to kind of ignore that. But you see, what, what faith in God offers is that you can always think about the end. You actually have to think about the end so that the glory of what is offered will break in to make this life meaningful that no suffering could ever take away. Okay, enough philosophy, all right? All this meaning in life talk, and you're like, Ricky Gervais, who's that? Did he invent that show, The Office, that my parents watch and think is funny, but I have no idea why, right? Okay, what, we could talk about meaning in life and suffering and all that, but how do we actually do it? How do we get meaning in our suffering? How do we get strength from our suffering? Remember I said, David looks up, so he doesn't abandon his faith in God, he sticks to his faith in God, but he also looks back. He looks back. And this answers the question, I think, is God really loving? Does a loving God really care about our suffering and our pain? So how are you strengthened by looking back? 
Well, first off, we see that David looks back in Psalm 59 because what he begins to do is we see that he can look back at his whole life. He can look back at how he had this incredible encounter and anointing from the prophet Samuel, how God's always been with him throughout his childhood, and how even in his fight with Goliath, God was there. And you see, when you read Psalm 59, you begin to hear the echoes of, God, of David reciting to himself, in many ways, some of the very same things he said in his battle with Goliath. The ways in which he trusted God and he saw God carry him through that battle, he is going back to, he is rehearsing over and over. This is why he says in verse 5, he's the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, right? Not just my God, the God of David. But then he goes back even further, not just to Israel, who is an actual person, right? He says that God rules over Jacob, but he says, the Lord is our shield. And here he's even echoing how Abraham saw God as his very shield. So he's not just recounting his own past. He's recounting the past of all of God's people and how God has been real to him. And he's looking at the goodness of God throughout history, knowing that our people have always been at points where we wondered, what is God doing in our life? And the people of God have always been carried through those moments. And so David can know that God's going to do that here and now in his own life. And you see, we have the same ability. We can look back on the goodness of God throughout history to know God's going to carry me through this. And actually, this is why we had the whole verse chapter read. We can do that with this chapter right here. All right, because kids, when you come to a book, a story in the Bible, it is totally appropriate to ask yourself, why is this story here? Like, what's the point of this story, right? I mean, sure, it's a little entertaining. David in the bed, he jumps out, he escapes, he hides, you know, because they put the wig on the statue in the bed, you know, and then this crazy party and no one can touch David. Like, that's entertaining, but why is this story here? What can we look back on from this story and begin to see the goodness of God? Well, I think when you read this story, remember I said, you have to ask the question, why is David trusting God? Look, everything's in David's favor to defeat Saul. Number one, he's been picked by the prophet Samuel. Everyone knows he's been anointed to be the king. Number two, he's best friends with the king's son. Number three, married to the king's daughter. Number four, yeah, he beat Goliath. I'm pretty sure he could take Saul. Oh, and guess what? Saul's already a little crazy and attacking him in private. David could always just do the whole, it was self-defense thing. And now David's at a point where he has now taken out the king of Israel and he could just take over his king right here, right now. And he's one of the greatest warriors in Israel who would be against David taking over. But instead... David chooses what is an absolutely humiliating route. Number one, he needs his bro, Jonathan, to go negotiate with his dad. And where is David the whole time? Hiding in a secret place, we're told. And then he has to go back and serve the very guy who wants to kill him now. Then he gets home after he has to just run away from Saul trying to take a spear and attempts to kill him for the sixth time, right? He gets home and his wife is the one who tells him, oh, by the way, there's a plot. You see those guys out there? Yeah, those aren't gardeners. They're here to assassinate you. So let's pretend you're not here, pretend you're sick, and then you can go. And then what happens after all is said and done and the plot's uncovered that David wasn't there, right? Because I love this idea that the, the henchmen, they come and they're like, 
we need David. And they're like, he's, he's sick. I'm like, okay, they go back to Saul, and Saul's like, well, then bring him on his bed. Like, come on, right? So you have the dull henchman archetype at play, and they come back, and then they find, like, they were fooled by goat's hair, right? I don't know what that says about David's hair, but, or what it says about the henchman. But then what does Michael say when she gets caught having covered for David? She goes, well, he said he was going to kill me if I didn't help him. So now David is painted as an abusive husband. And then he has to run off into the wilderness. Everything about this is humiliating. Why does David choose the humiliating route? Well, I think the answer is actually clear. Because David is not just here to become the ruler, but he's also here to become the healer and the uniter. David could take the throne by force, easily, very easily. But if he does, it's not going to create peace and wholeness. It's just going to create someone else who wants to take the throne over from David. And so how can David become a king who can heal the people? Well, he has to take a humiliating road. Now, you see, of course, we look back at King David only to be pointed to our King Jesus, who could have come and defeated all the powers of evil, could end suffering with a snap, and yet he chooses a humiliating path, a path that leads him to a cross where he is stripped, he is beaten and crucified, utterly humiliated. And yet, why? Even though he could have had the power to take over. Well, it's because Jesus is the king who doesn't just come to take over, but he comes to heal and to bring peace. And we get to look back at the cross to see how our God heals us. You see, King Jesus is a king who weeps. He's not a stoic king who has to just accept suffering and try and express his highest good. We're also told that King Jesus is a king who got angry when he saw suffering. That he would get upset, it would say deeply troubled because suffering is not just, there isn't unjust suffering in this world. There are things that make you wonder why would God let this happen? And yet he is a king who dies. To end suffering without ending you. So, David looks back, which helps us to be able to look back. But then David also looks forward. We don't just, because here's the thing. We have a sympathetic God. That's nice. That's lovely. And we have a God who's going to end evil and suffering without ending us, because we're also perpetrators of evil and suffering. Great. But why can't he do something about it, though? What's he going to do fix all this evil and suffering. Why can't he just stop it, right? And so David looks forward. We see this over and over again in Psalm 59, where he says, I will watch for you. My God will come to meet me. I will sing of your strength and will joyfully proclaim. All future tense, all looking forward. How does he get strength from looking forward, right? Now, it's important to recognize that David in this psalm is not looking forward to the day when he's king but he's looking forward to the day when God is the ruler of all the nations. At no point does he point to his own throne, but he points to God's kingdom coming and taking over. 
He says, I can't, not I can't wait till one day I'm in charge, but one day you will be in charge and you will put everything right. And I think we get a little picture of what that looks like in 1 Samuel 19. Because again, there's this crazy story that I think it's right to ask, why is this here? Why is this story here about, again, all the henchmen now, they go to Samuel, the prophet who's protecting David now, and then they show up, and then they immediately start prophesying. Now I know, it's really, you're like, what's going on here? And honestly, we're not quite, quite sure, okay? We could spend all day talking about what does prophesying mean and what's here. That's not the point, and I'll tell you why that's not the point. The point is not to look at, okay, they come, they prophesy. Then more guys come, they prophesy. And then Saul comes, and then Saul starts prophesying. They're all kind of caught up, and no one can come here and do anything bad to David. This prophesying is actually probably talking about how great David's going to be and how he will be the king that God has chosen, right? There's good reason to believe that might even be the case. And then it gets weirder because it then is like Saul just like strips down and lays there, right, and prophesies, and he can do nothing. And then it ends with this super cryptic phrase. You're like, is this, is Saul not one of the prophets? Is this not why people say, right? So there's this rumor about Saul. Is this not why people ask, is Saul one of the prophets? Here's why this is significant. Because if you were to flip back to chapter 10 of 1 Samuel, there's this time where Saul, being picked as the king of Israel, is caught up with a group of prophets and starts prophesying. Right, this is Saul. So like, this is your friend who is, right, the successful lawyer, the successful investment banker, who all of a sudden converts to Christianity and their life starts to change. This is Saul. Saul, the super successful, handsome, great-looking leader, the perfect king that anyone could think of. And he converts, basically, he starts to get religious. And he takes God seriously and starts to live for God. And everyone's like, wow, this is incredible. Isn't Saul one of the prophets? Like, is that what's happening? And so people see this incredible change in Saul's life. But now here you see, again, an incredible change in Saul's life. And what was a phrase that used to mean, man, this is incredible how God's working in Saul's life, is now a phrase that's like, I thought God was at work in Saul's life and expresses the disappointment of how things have totally changed. You see, the Spirit of God in chapter 10 is coming on Saul to enable him to be a powerful and incredible king. And now we see the Spirit of God coming on Saul, disabling him so that David can be a powerful and incredible king. You see, I think this begins to give us a glimpse of what God can do in each one of our lives is that he can make these total reversals that work backwards and begin to redefine the things that happen in our life. But it's the opposite for us of how it was for Saul. You see, God can work backwards in our life because of the resurrection. For example, when Jesus is, you know, it's, it's, it's Lent, and the day Jesus is crucified on is a Friday, and traditionally it's called Good Friday. And so, of course, my kids and all of you kids probably in here ask, why is it called Good Friday if that's the day they crucified Jesus? Shouldn't that be Black Friday? And why is Black Friday a shopping holiday? And then, you know, it goes off the rails from there. But the idea is, why is it Good Friday? Why is it not dark, black, depressing Friday. 
That's because on Sunday, God worked backwards through time and changed the very meaning of what took place on that Friday. Because in resurrecting from the grave, he redefined all the suffering that he went through and showed that it not detract from him, but it actually glorified him. And thus, his resurrection is just, we're told, the first down payment of what the resurrection is going to look like for all of us, is that as C.S. Lewis writes, some mortals say of temporal suffering that no future bliss could ever make up for it, not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn that agony into glory. You see, Jesus is not just a king who can weep with you and understand your suffering, though he is. He's not just a king who's angry at suffering and yet can do nothing about it, or a dying king, but he is a risen king who can work backwards and turn all of your suffering into glory, and that your life will be more glorious for the suffering you've experienced, not less, just because, like, and just like his life was more glorious because of his suffering not less. And so what we're called to do now is we're called to stand and watch, just like David. We're invited to look up and find our meaning in God. We're invited to look back and see how God has always been faithful to us and how he is going to end suffering without ending us. And we're invited to look forward. And of course, no clearer picture does that for us than the Lord's Supper which reminds us of how Jesus died for us, giving his body and his blood to create a new covenant. And that this meal points us forward to the day where we will eat it face to face with Jesus. And of course, here and now, while this bread and these cups may not seem like much, they point to the spiritual union and strengthening that we can get from Jesus. Just like Food can become one with our own bodies and make us strong and build us up. So too, Jesus spiritually makes himself one with us to strengthen us in our times of suffering. So let's pray. Our gracious God and King, our humble suffering servant, our exalted risen Savior, we thank you for the ways in which you give us meaning in suffering. And we pray that as we now enter into this sacrament of the Lord's Supper, that you would strengthen us in our faith. Amen.